0: Welcome to the History of Education Society podcast. Every month we'll be featuring interviews, ideas, thought-provoking discussions, collaborations and publications from across the field of the history of education and beyond. Today, I'm joined by Nick Johnson from the Center for German-American Educational History at the University of Münster in Germany um, and he's here to talk a little bit about um, a new publication um, that he has co-edited called Show, Don't Tell, Education and Historical Representations on Stage and Screen in Germany and the USA. Nick thanks so much for joining. So I guess to begin um, it'd be good to know a little bit about your background um, and your academic interests. How did you kind of come to, to where
1: you are? Yeah, so I got started um, dual majoring in um, history and German in undergrad. And then um, in 2012, when I finished my undergrad degree at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, or IUPUI for short, I decided I wanted to uh, do my master's in public history. Uh, IUPUI at the time uh, gave me a pretty good offer for public history and said, hey, if you go here, we'll let you do something with German history in the public history field and we'll give you the opportunity to go to Germany on exchange. So I took him up on the offer. Um, During that period, I uh, was an exchange student at the Free University of Berlin uh, in their public history program. I came back to the U.S., wrote a master's thesis on uh, the HBO film Conspiracy. I was made aware of a job here at the Center for German-American Educational History, and I applied for it, and I I, uh, managed to get it. And I've been here since january of 2017 yeah i've I've really enjoyed it even though it's it's uh different from what i started out in as a public historian and what they've they've let me do is sort of combine my earlier background with educational history it's important to remember too that um, public history as a field is uh sort of in its infancy in germany it's only been around as like something you could study for the past decade so for example university of munster does not have uh any public historians on staff um and since it's german american uh Uh, research center that's all about transatlantic exchange of ideas they decided hey they wanted a guy with a public history background
0: so yeah moving on to the publication that has just come out um show don't tell um could you talk a little bit about the volume and and uh what sort of the central questions were because i know there were kind of two um two co-editors is that right yes for the volume
1: yes so uh it's important to remember that this volume is part of a series called um studies uh in German American educational history. The first volume came out at the end of 2016. Uh, it was edited by Jürgen Overhoff and Anna Overbeck. First volume is titled "New Perspectives on German American Educational History," and that volume is sort of just an introduction to the field. Um, and then after after that was published, they decided they wanted to then do different thematic areas. I think largely because one I was hired on as a public historian and two, uh, Tim Zumhoff, my co-editor had just finished his dissertation on the history of what I described as the history. It was about theater history, but specifically how actors became the field of acting became professionalized in the 18th century and how there was a whole like educative apparatus built around educating um, actors. Mm-hmm. And so from our two backgrounds, this volume came uh, the idea for this volume came about, and so what we did was in the summer of 2018, we hosted a lecture series. All the chapters in this uh, in this book originally started as lectures uh, for the lecture series in summer of 18. So the, some of the questions for the volume, obviously, you have the personal interest from Tim, theater, for me, film. But... You then have both the German-American encounter, which some of the, uh, some of the articles, uh, emphasize. For example, I think mine does, uh, Jürgen Overhoff's does, um, Torsten Karstensen's does, and then the educative aspect. So, for example, not only do you have some contributions that are, say, like mine, the history of a certain work of art as an educative act or medium, you also have, for example, very practical, um, chapters from educators or historians or in one example we have a reenactor.
0: I wonder if maybe um, this was a point where we could talk a little bit about how you yourself kind of would define public history and how you having kind of now stepped into the world I guess of educational history or the history of education how you see the relationship
1: between the two. Okay this is a fun question because if you um, yeah if you look up public history, you're going to see just a plethora of definitions. I think the field itself has a, a, a sort of a problem with self-definition. You see this in uh, the German context because the field is so new here. There's constantly a debate about what counts as public history, what doesn't. So I'll just give you what I understand public history as. I think a lot of times when public historians try to you know, separate themselves from what they might call academic or normal history, I find that overblown i think the fundamental difference between public history and any other kind of history is simply the audience on the research back end it looks the same you're asking some of the same sorts of questions you're going into an archive just like any other historian it's at the end when you're uh, you know making the product if you will to to use that phrase uh, where it's different so public history could for example include a museum exhibit that's sort of the classic definition of public history things like a Park Ranger in the United States, it's say a battlefield or a presidential home, um, online exhibits, then you sort of then, of course, you see the overlaps with digital history, digital humanities. Um, I argue that in addition to things like documentaries and oral histories, I think dramatic film uh, is certainly a form of public history. If you look at the goals i mean obviously beyond monetary one of my favorite um definitions of public history i've heard is uh it's piggybacking i forget the name of the supreme court justice but there was a famous obscenity case in the 1960s and he was asked to define obscenity and he said well i know it when i see it i just want to emphasize that when you see public historians try to really separate themselves from things like academic history or vice versa, acad- academic, academic historians like, Oh, public history is this. I think really it overlap. They overlap. And a lot of this has to do with just the history of the field, uh, coming out of a jobs crisis in the 1970s. And it's part of the struggle for self-definition and justification of, you know, for the field's own existence. Um, and, as far as educational history and its connection with public history, I think, um, first of all, public history has always implicitly and explicitly been an educative action, whether it's edu- the, the simplest form, you know, a museum educator um, leading a tour group, whether it's school children, random visitors, what have you, or simply like the act of writing a museum exhibit or the act of trying to condense a very complicated history into a form that can be understand by, understood by lay people and not just of fellow academics. One of the things that in our volume uh, Tim Zumhoff does in his piece is he traces the developments of public history in the U.S. and the English-speaking world starting in, in the 1970s with a parallel development in the German context called uh, history didactics or Geschichtsdidaktik. And this is happening around the same time. This is first and foremost how to teach history to in schools, but the field of history didactic over time began to address questions of history in the public, whether on television, whether things like monuments, memorials, that type of thing. And so one of the things he's done in this, we've done in this volume is not only use public history methods, but look at, or historicize it as an educative method.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. So um, perhaps we could talk a little bit now about your chapter, which I know um, stemmed from your master's dissertation. Um, so in this chapter, you, you look at this HBO HBO series called Conspiracy. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you how you came to that topic and what some of your leading questions
1: were for that. Okay, so first of all, um, Conspiracy is an HBO original movie. Uh, they came oh, out great. came out in two thousand one uh, in co production <laughs> with the BBC. Yeah, uh, it's mostly British actors with the exception of Stanley Tucci. Uh, I saw this film towards the end of uh, my undergrad education and. I remember just honestly being blown away by the film. It's about the Wannsee conference and it consists of, it's very similar to the movie, 12 angry men, but it's 15 Nazi bureaucrats in a room arguing about how they're going to coordinate the, the final solution. And I remember watching it and thinking like, this is the most brutal film on the Holocaust I've ever seen. And there's not a single act of violence in this movie at all. It's just people talking. Um, and then when I was on exchange in Berlin, I, Remember, I visited the Vonsay House Memorial. I remember talking with friends that had also seen the movie, and also the uh, There's a German film about the Vonsay Conference called "The Vonsay Conference," which came out in 1984. And I remember at the time thinking, "Hey, it would be great if I could compare these two uh, for my master's thesis." But at the time, I had found that in uh, the University of Wisconsin in Madison had a an archival collection from the writer of "Conspiracy" Loring Mandel which contains every script draft production documents with production documents. I don't just mean like memos. I mean, things like uh, meeting minutes, correspondence research documents where a fact checker would go through the script and say, okay, we need to cut this out. We need to explain this. Uh, This line is bogus because of, you know, whatever Uh, here's where we can find a source for this. It was fascinating material to show how a historical film is made and, Mm -hmm. What's important about me being in Germany at the time when I first came up with this idea was when I took public history in the U.S., media was never really mentioned as part of my studies there. Um, It was mostly focused on museums, memorials, the National Park Service, environmental history, sometimes documentary editing and archives. But when I was in Germany, I noticed a much stronger emphasis on media. And I thought, well, okay. The first thing I thought was, well, in the U.S., I had classes where we were talking about living history and reenactment and taking them very seriously as forms of communicating history. And I thought, well, wait, hold on. How can we be just dismiss film and theater, but then say reenactment is okay? I thought that was logically inconsistent. And then that sort of snowballed from there. And I thought, okay, well, I've always found this film fascinating. And there's an archival collection that no one had touched at the time. And that's what got me into it.
0: I wonder if we could talk a little bit um, before going into your uh, article in more depth, touch on the idea of Holocaust education um, and talk a little bit about the debate surrounding that, because obviously that's a huge, a huge area and um, a lot has been said about that. And I, I'm sure there are a lot of debates that, you know, much better than I do. But could you perhaps talk a little bit about um, some of the debates surrounding um, yeah, the educative kind of aspects of, of Holocaust films and, and plays, etc. cetera?
1: Okay, um, so what I'll do here is I'll briefly outline, I think, three or four debates that I think are most important. Um, the classic one and the one you see the most referenced in literature and especially in uh, in the popular press is the sort of old hat debate that was very prominent in the 1990s and a little bit in the 1980s, where uh, they set up a dichotomy between Schindler's List and then the documentary Shoah by Claude Lanzmann, where Schindler's List is Hollywood on one end, and then Shoah is this very sober documentary on the other hand. Um, within this debate, you see an idea. Um, I think people like the Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel certainly represent one side of the debate, a more conservative side of the debate that says uh, the idea of just dramatizing the Holocaust at all is beyond the pale and inappropriate. Um, Usually this is due to things like depictions of violence, but also due to things like, for example, when NBC aired uh, its dramatization called Holocaust in the late 1970s starring Meryl Meryl Streep. There were many critics, I think Elie Wiesel was actually one of them at the time, who said, hey, this is turning the Holocaust into a soap opera. This is beyond the pale. And so you often see in this early debate just this idea that, hey, you can't even dramatize it at all because the crime is so enormous and you're trivializing it. This is also tied in with, for example, in the case of NBC's Holocaust. This is a commercial enterprise. This is network TV. There's advertisements airing between the scenes. And this is one of the reasons I found conspiracy so fascinating was it just avoids this debate by not showing violence. The central question in Holocaust film in general and all the debates is how do you represent the unrepresentable, unrepresentable crime of the Holocaust? There is a British historian named Alex Kay who published an article on conspiracy actually, I believe last year. And he even titled it Speaking the Unspeakable, whereas this is a film where actors are speaking of an unspeakable crime and that's one of the central questions of conspiracy and also its german predecessors how do you represent an unspeakable crime in the form of dialogue you have other debates uh more recent ones i think richard brody the film critic for the new yorker is a prime avatar of one position where i mean i personally do not agree with this, but he seems to flatly reject any German depictions of the Holocaust in both film or memorialization. Uh, For example, in his review of a movie called The Captain, which came out, I believe, two years ago, he's scathing, absolutely against it. I find this type of attitude very counterproductive and conservative. However, on the other hand, I think he's right in some instances where you see the German film Downfall. Everyone's seen these clips on YouTube with different subtitles with Hitler in the bunker screaming. Uh, this film absolutely fails to address the Holocaust, like in any serious manner. And in an extreme case about debates on the Holocaust, uh, Holocaust films and Holocaust dramas and education, I've noticed, and it's hard for me to point to a publication because I normally see this in conversations with people. I've noticed a reluctance on the part of some German educators, ex- especially to use anything that has invented dialogue, which is, of course, makes any dramatic film or dramatic production about the Holocaust off-limits. There have been some ways to get around this. Uh, There's a type of documentary theater, which is where a theatrical play is written based on historical primary documents. Um, For example, Alyssa Rubenstein's piece in our uh, volume is an example of one such documentary play. Lastly, I think a debate that I certainly see among my students when I teach about history and film. Um, You often see a disconnect between a historian's desire for everything to be accurate, which I think is of course laudable, but that's very surface level. I mean, historians have been looking at historical films, obviously since historical films were a thing a hundred years ago, but just looking at whether a film is accurate or not is that's just the starting point. We should go beyond that.
0: (laughs) Definitely. Actually, that's a really good starting point. I think for talking a little bit more about conspiracy, because in your chapter, you you sort of say that it's a really important case study for an example of, of doing history on film kind of being done well. Um, And I wonder what you would argue um, makes a a good historical film. Um, If, you know, if our aim is to, to educate in some way, what, does Conspiracy and, and other films
1: do well in that sense? Okay. So for Conspiracy, um, I mentioned earlier, it's devoid of violence. It's largely devoid of, you know, sweeping dramatic turns. I mean, there's, a, there's definitely arguments within the film, especially in scenes between, uh, Colin Firth's character and Ian McNeese's character. That's certainly uh, an aspect of the film where you can, I think, rightly criticize it for simplifying history. Of course, there's dramatization within the script because the Wannsee Protocol was not a verbatim transcript. It was edited to, one, remove any direct references to murder, and two, it was written in a very bureaucratic, euphemistic language. This is something the German film on Wannsee does too. The dialogue is, of course, invented. However, I would argue that Conspiracy, and I can think of some other Holocaust films that I would recommend, um, Son of Saul being one, they sort of avo- They avoid this problem that you see in the debate I mentioned earlier surrounding films like Schindler's list surrounding films, like um, surrounding the TV program Holocaust, that is, you know, one, they avoid the happy end. Um, This is something that Holocaust films are especially coming out of Hollywood are I think rightly criticized for is there's always a need to have, you know, an uplifting message at the end Um, conspiracy in these two other films I mentioned do not even attempt to have an uplifting message at the end of them, which I think is very important when discussing the Holocaust. Second, they all avoid this. Well, they avoid pathos. These, these, these films are devoid of that. And this is, this is always, and it's important. I'm not saying that um, these are good films because they, uh, they don't have pathos. I'm saying, if Holocaust films are often criticized because of pathos and these films don't have them, maybe they're worth looking at. I, like, I would never say Conspiracy is a perfect historical film. I mean, as someone who's mm-hmm. writing on it, I could name a dozen flaws with the thing. However, I would have a hard time finding another historical film that does it better.
0: One of the parts of your chapter that I found very interesting was the role of the historical advisors on the film um, and just how much historical research went into producing the script and and went into the program as a whole. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that and and also maybe about what that level of research does to our understanding of the film as a a kind of educative tool.
1: So uh, one thing that these documents tell us uh, compared to other historical films, usually what will happen with production documents is they'll be locked in a vault somewhere or they'll be destroyed because... They don't interest anyone in uh, the guy who wrote conspiracy. Loring Mandel just donated all of his paper, private papers for all the stuff he'd worked on to uh, his alma mater at university of Wisconsin. But what these production documents do is normally when a historian writes about a film, usually the historian watches the film, they might read interviews with the, um, the writer or the director. They might read reviews of the film and that's all really, they have to go on. They can watch the film and they, they could say, okay, well i pretty sure the film's arguing xyz with conspiracy in these production documents you can find production memos where say a producer or the director will explicitly say our historiographical and they'll use the word historiographical our historical or historiographical argument is xyz uh, which i think is really important for us as either historians or educators because we can empirically prove that at least this was intent you also see As far as historical advisors of conspiracy, um, the process from what I understand it is Loring Mandel, you know, he read a bunch of secondary sources, plus the Vonze protocol came up with his first draft. And then that was run through a process that took years of consulting with either historians like Michael Berenbaum at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C. Um, At one point, Christopher Browning was contacted. But then you have uh, Andrea Axelrod, who was a full time researcher hired by HBO, who did the bulk of the research and fact-checking. In contrast, so for example, there's the German film I mentioned, Die wannsee conference, This is a much different type of research style, uh, I think is more uh, close to what we know as historians. So for example, when Paul Momauts, the screenwriter for the German film, was tasked with writing his screenplay, he immediately went to the Institute for Contemporary History in Munich. He immediately contacted Yad Vashem and was in the archives for, for, I believe, a year. And so that movie, you could trace in, in its archive, the the research process was identical to what we would do.
0: Great, so sort of to end maybe by um, thinking a little bit about people who might be listening, so perhaps they're historians of education or um, historians who are interested in education. I wondered what you thought historians um, who are interested in in public history and education can, can best use film or how they should approach film, um, from in a historical perspective.
1: So there's, there's several different avenues of approach here. Hmm. The classic one is you take a film from a particular society in particular time period to illustrate how that society thought about a certain historical issue at a particular time. The classic example of course is birth of a nation in the United States.
0: Hmm.
1: You use that to show like, Hey, this is what the, the white supremacists in I think standard view of the the clan was at the time. There's that classic approach. Uh, One approach that I think is valuable is, um, for example, you could take a film like Braveheart or the Patriot, one that doesn't depict history well at all, and use that to discuss things like media literacy, because these films are so problematic. There's going to be a lot of literature on why they're problematic. And it would be, I think very easy to illustrate where these films go wrong, and in some cases, why. Another example would be whether it's a dramatic film or a documentary. You could use these to show how historical narratives are constructed. Something's always going to be left out. What's left out? Uh, what's not left out? What did the filmmakers choose to emphasize? What not? So, what I'm saying is, you could do this with documentaries. You can do this with dramatic film, and I think media literacy is incredibly important. And this is, of course, speaking from a didactic perspective
0: well that was great thank you so much um, thanks for having um, me thank you uh, so much for joining us um, and if anyone listening is, is interested they can um check it out um, it's called show don't tell education and historical representations on stage and screen in germany and the usa um, and it covers all of these um really interesting topics um, yeah thanks very much
1: thanks